Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review, also the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. We have multiple good martinis today. Good, good, and crazy. And, as promised yesterday, we have a very special feature at the end of this podcast related to politics and the start of the NFL season, which actually kicks off tonight with the 100th season of the NFL, Bears versus Packers. We're going to put a little bit of a different twist on it. If you've read The Morning Jolt, you already kind of know what's going to happen. Jim, let's start with our good martini, and we don't get to say this often, but an egregious wrong in Washington has been made right. Let's go to the free beacon. Department of Labor employee Leif Olson will return to his post one day after stepping down in the wake of a Bloomberg Law article that wrongfully accused him of anti-Semitism. Olson tweeted confirmation from his Twitter account Wednesday night. Quote, I am grateful to be heading back to work. Thank you, Acting Secretary Pat Pazella and Administrator Cheryl Stanton for the opportunity to continue to serve. And in a subsequent tweet, he writes, And to everyone who reached out, and especially to each of you who risked your own credibility and reputation to defend mine, Joe and I can never thank you enough. Each of you is a blessing, and we hope to bless you in return. Thank you, and thank you again. Acting Labor Secretary Patrick Pazella personally made the decision. A senior Labor Department official told the Daily Caller he concluded that a correction is much better than an injustice. So... Jim, usually these things end up being, well, it's a shame that happened. That really wasn't fair. But, oh, squirrel, look what the next story is. This time, a uh, wrong situation was made right. It is. Now, this is not to say the story, at least from where I've said, should be completely laid to bed and we should all move on. There's still that question of Bloomberg Law reporter Ben Penn and Bloomberg Law as an institution. The justification for the taking the comments out of context and treating sarcastic remarks as if they were uh, meant literally is was that well look he he stepped down so clearly he must have done something wrong that's something of you know circuitous logic there in that uh, the well he had to resign well yes he resigned because you wrote a story that made him sound like he said something that he didn't do uh, as of this recording still no word of any retraction from Bloomberg law no comment from Ben Penn a couple of folks had reached out to him and to his employer no comment on either one of those look not only does this warrant a retraction I don't like calling for people to get fired or something like that but this is the sort of thing where there really should be some sort of serious consequence uh, for Ben Penn and oh by the way as we said earlier in the week the person who edited it who didn't notice or didn't recognize that those Facebook comments were, uh, sarcastic for not getting, you know, any clarification or any comment from Olson himself. And, uh, you know, look, look, this this should be a giant black mark on the reputation of Bloomberg Law. Uh, and I don't know if anyone should trust their report. In fact, I tell you, you should not trust their reporting until they make amends on this. I think that's a very good piece of advice. And it was interesting yesterday morning that Penn and everyone else at Bloomberg Law just moved on to other stories, pretending like nothing had happened. And to the credit of a lot of folks on the left, we don't see this that much anymore. Even folks like Jonathan Chait and even Vox, I think, was out there saying, wait a minute, Bloomberg Law, this is way over the line. So even folks who didn't really have the the vested interest from an ideological standpoint to stand up for Lee Olson actually did so. And now that the Labor Department has restored him, that's good, too. But you're absolutely right. This is perhaps one of the darkest moments in partisan journalism in a very long time. And we talk about them almost on a daily basis. But this one is perhaps the most egregious that we've seen in a very long time. 
I'd like to think that this was a rare moment of um, self-awareness on the part of these left of center commentators that everyone or, or the vast majority of public commentators will use sarcasm sooner or later. That sarcastic comment, if read literally, could sound like you're saying something that you completely disagree with. For example, uh, the folks at Media Matters who listen to us or they're geniuses. <laughs> well, Jim Garrity called Media Matters geniuses. You know, that's, you know, it's bad faith. <laughs> it's, you know, and I think everybody recognizes that, oh, if this is the new rule, it can be used against any of us. If you can lose your comment for a sarcastic remark being interpreted as you know your actual beliefs then we're all toast then we're then, then everybody's going to get fired at some point because almost everybody has done something like this and we you know it's this institution of this sudden new social rule that sarcasm is a fireable offense i know we've been really rough on ben penn and i don't think we've been rough enough so i'm going to put another uh, name out there to equate him to we don't have this in the year-end awards, and I don't think anyone should ever name an award after this person. But Ben Penn could be the winner of the Harry Reid Award for, yeah, I know the story's bogus, but he's not there anymore, right? Yeah. Uh, so, it worked, didn't it? <laughs> that's right. Mitt Romney didn't become president after I lied about him not paying taxes, right? Except in this situation, Ben Penn didn't ultimately get what he wanted because Leif Olson is back on the job. So good Martin. We could create a new subcategory for the you know, bad faith <laughs> attack that doesn't work. Let's move on to our second good martini, and this is jumping off of yesterday's crazy martini, where we were talking about how essentially this peace deal between the United States and the Taliban largely amounts to trusting that the Taliban will not harbor terrorist organizations or carry out their own terrorist attacks, even while they're carrying out terrorist attacks while they're doing this supposed negotiation. So here's the twist for today. Time magazine, which still writes articles, apparently. Uh, the U.S. is closing in on a deal with the Taliban that is designed to wind down America's 18-year war in Afghanistan. But the best indication of how risky the pact may be is this. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is declining to sign it, according to senior U.S., Afghan, and European officials. They then talk about what Zalmay Khalilzad has hammered out in nine rounds of talks with the Taliban representatives. But the deal doesn't ensure several crucial things. Those familiar with the discussions tell time. It doesn't guarantee the continued presence of U.S. counterterrorism forces to battle al-Qaeda, the survival of the pro-U.S. government in Kabul, or even an end to the fighting in Afghanistan. Quote, no one speaks with certainty. None, said an Afghan official taking part in briefings on the deal with Khalilzad. It's all based on hope. There is no trust. There is no history of trust. There is no evidence of honesty and sincerity from the Taliban. And intercepted communications show that they think they have fooled the U.S. while the U.S. believes that should the Taliban cheat, they will pay a hefty price. Now, ultimately, the final word from the State Department here, Jim, is that, look, if everybody's on board, including the president of the United States, then Pompeo will be the assigned signatory to this thing and he'll do his duty and sign it. But we're a long way from getting to the point where everybody who needs to be on board is on board. Two things kind of jump out at this. Uh, the first is it does recognize that there are some people in the U.S. government who at least see the situation clearly. Um, I have no illusions that, that basically the you know, American public believes we should leave Afghanistan. We should completely withdraw our troops from Afghanistan. And they don't foresee any bad things happening uh, after we leave Afghanistan. I think this is wrong. I think this is ignorant of history. This is this is ignorant of very recent history, including what happened in Iraq when we withdrew all of our troops. But fine, all right. The American public chooses to believe the other aspect. The, and I have very little doubt that the president of the United States wants to be able to say we're out of Afghanistan when he's running for re-election in 2020. 
Um, or if he say, you know, if he can't do that, he wants to say, we're almost out of Afghanistan and everyone will be home by this time next year when he's running for re-election in 2020. The good news here is that Mike Pompeo, at least, and my guess is if he's having this attitude, there are other people in the United States government at high level who recognize the risk here, who recognize that you have a chance of looking really dumb. You have a chance of looking really naive. And you have a chance of looking like something akin to the modern Chamberlain if part of your withdrawal from Afghanistan requires is, is a promise from the Taliban not to sponsor terrorism. As I wrote yesterday, if you want to leave Afghanistan, you know, I, I think it's the bad, I don't think it's the right move, but fine, go ahead and do it. Don't run around and say, oh, by the way, we've got an agreement with the Taliban. Like that just makes you look stupid. And that is what, uh, you know, Pompeo is probably trying to save both his own reputation down the road for not being the Chamberlain, holding up a piece of paper signed by the Taliban, declaring peace in our time. I don't know whether he has presidential ambitions down the road. There's still occasional talks about him running for Senate someday. Um, Pompeo recognizes anybody who signs that deal with the Taliban is going to look really stupid for a really long time. So the interesting question will be, uh, interesting whether the president wants to have that associated with himself. If we're going to leave Afghanistan, fine. Don't go through the charade of a peace deal with the, the Taliban. And I think this indicates it may not actually go through. Now, again, I still think we're going to leave. I still think we'll eventually have all our troops leave. But uh, at least we won't go through this, you know, ludicrous idea that the Taliban are some sort of responsible partner in peace. Yeah. If the Obama administration was pulling this off, how loud do you think the howls would be on the right? Oh, you know, look, this is another example uh, in which a whole bunch of folks who got, you know, really livid with stuff Obama did, I would argue, you know, legitimately, whether it was deficits, whether it was, you know, meeting with dictators and things like that, um, are perfectly fine with it when it's their guy uh, who's doing this the exact same thing. All right, let's move on to the crazy martini now, Jim. And there's no better place to be for the crazy martini than San Francisco, California. This is from KPX CBS 5 in the Bay Area by a unanimous vote. Unanimous. San Francisco's Board of Supervisors have passed a resolution declaring the National Rifle Association a domestic terrorist organization and urging other cities to follow their example. While the vote was mostly symbolic, city officials were ordered to, quote, take every reasonable step to limit, unquote, business interactions with the NRA and its supporters. Supervisor Catherine Stefani, whose district includes the Marina and Presidio neighborhoods, sponsored the resolution because of federal inaction in the wake of a mass shooting in nearby Gilroy, where a gunman opened fire at the city's famed Gilroy Garlic Festival, killing three and injuring 20 before killing himself. Quote, the NRA spreads propaganda that misinforms and aims to deceive the public about the dangers of gun violence. Stefani's resolution declares... Quote, all countries have violent and hateful people, but only in America do we give them ready access to assault weapons and large-capacity magazines, thanks in large part to the National Rifle Association's influence, the resolution continues. In a Twitter post Wednesday morning, the NRA called the San Francisco vote a reckless assault on a law-abiding organization. Quote, this is a reckless assault on a law-abiding organization, its members, and the freedoms they all stand for. We remain undeterred, guided by our values and belief in those who want to find real solutions to violence. So, Jim, it's San Francisco, so take that with a lot of salt. But uh, what do you make of the mangling of the uh, English language here to declare the NRA a terrorist organization? You know, Greg, this is our crazy martini, but it could very well have been our bad martini. 
Um, and I know everybody's like, ah, you know, it's San Francisco. They're crazy out there. Indeed. But I, I think this is really setting a dangerous precedent, uh, not merely because they're calling upon other city councils to do the same thing. You know, to quote the great Rush Limbaugh, words mean stuff. <laughs> you don't get to hand wave and suddenly change it to what you want it to be, to make the words what you want them to, be, to mean. Um, the San Francisco Board of Supervisors really hates the NRA. Fine. It's a free country. You're free to have that. Right. If you want to say we abhor the NRA, go right ahead. If you want to say you think the NRA is wrong, fine. You want to argue that there shouldn't be a Second Amendment and some people should try to repeal it, go right ahead. Be my guest. Please get as many members of your party to run on that explicitly uh, in the next election as, as possible. However, you don't, you know, the words terrorism and the term domestic terrorist organization have meanings, right? You know what you have to do to be a terrorist? Commit acts of terror. That's why they call them terrorists, right? Um, it, you know, it, it, besides the fact that this the line of thinking as espoused by the city council here is that uh, the NRA is responsible for things that it's, it's people who are not members do. When we start doing using the term terrorist to describe people who have not broken the law, who are not plotting violence against others, who are not attempting to achieve a political goal through a non-legitimate, non-legal, violent act, right? Then, first of all, I think it kind of, it, it waters down the word. And my fear is you'll end up with everybody calling everybody else terrorists. Now, Greg, we've just been through an argument in which, you know, by picking on uh, Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and all of these other, the squad, uh, President Trump was allegedly inciting terrible acts of violence against them. Now, I'm sure they're getting death threats. And you know what? That stinks. That's absolutely terrible. Nobody should be sending death threats in this country. Trump has, to the best of my knowledge, not called uh, Ilhan Omar a terrorist. And he should not, because she is not a terrorist. Now, Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib have associated with some really unsavory characters. I recommend everyone take a look at that David French article about the organization that wanted to sponsor their trip to Israel. But if you say, hey, Ilhan Omar is a terrorist, you know what, you're wrong uh, factually, and I think you are doing damage to our public discourse. Because I, to me, terrorism matters, right? You should use that term on Timothy McVeigh. You should use that term on Omar Mateen. You should use that term on Eric Rudolph, right? You know, there are people who have earned that label by trying to commit acts of violence. Having an opinion you really disagree with is not an act of violence. And then just kind of one more point to, on the, uh, the language there. Uh, saying city employees should take every reasonable step to limit business interactions with the NRA or its supporters. I would love to know if the city of San, the government of San Francisco has any business interaction with the NRA at all. My guess is none. It's not like they hold the conference there. I'd be pleasantly surprised if there actually was a you know NRA club or uh, you know people are active in the NRA in San Francisco. Um, but my suspicion is that part will have no particular meaning. But the more interesting thing is. Um, the interaction with, uh, you know, with city contracts. In other words, let's assume you're the guy who makes the orange traffic cones that the city uses for when it's doing construction or road repair or something like that. And you've got a contract to provide the city with orange traffic cones, but you're a big, you're an NRA member, you're a big NRA donor, NRA bumper sticker on your truck, all that kind of stuff. And the city says, oh my goodness, well, we have to limit, this, the city council has said we have to take every reasonable step to limit our business interactions we're canceling our contract with you. If that comes to pass, the city is probably going to lose it. They're probably going to get sued and they're probably going to lose uh, for this. This is in today's morning jolt. I did a little research. Kind of surprising. 
you know, there was a, a recent decision by a federal court that said, look, there was an agency. They had to uh, do blacktop on a uh, uh, it was an Air Force base. The company was supposed to do the blacktop, wasn't doing a great job. They had all kinds of delays. Um, they had a subcontractor that fell through for them. Uh, and the relationship between the, the government agency folks who had hired them for the contract and the contracting company just got worse and worse. So they canceled the contract. And you might say, oh, okay, well, it's the Air Force. It's their contract. They had every right to cancel it. No, they do not. <laughs> um, they did not clear the threshold to cancel the contract in the eyes of the federal court. And what's more is the federal court determined that a personal animosity was a big factor in this decision. It declared, you know, look, objectivity must be the hallmark of any decision to terminate for default. Therefore, government personnel should remember to focus on the facts and make every attempt to work with the contractor before taking steps to terminate for cause. Now, look, it's possible a different judge will look at this a little bit differently, but based on this precedent, you would think cancel the city of San Francisco canceling a contract with a contractor over the contractor's views on the National Rifle Association or the Second Amendment or gun rights, they would probably say that is a wrongful termination of the contract and uh, they would lose the case. So, uh, you know, again, this is this is government by tantrum. This is just saying what you want, you know, declaring words mean what you want them to mean. My fear is that this will this mentality will spread, that in addition to, you know, the usual, you have blood on your hands arguments you get after a, a mass shooting, um, that city governments will start labeling people terrorists for having a viewpoint they don't like. And then at some point, some unhinged loon is going to start shooting people, like, say, at a softball game, or maybe go into the focus on the, uh, was it focus on family offices or one of those organizations? Family Research Council, um, yeah. Family Research Council, and start shooting them because, hey, the city council said they were terrorists. This is a complete abrogation of the responsibility of leadership in government. And as crazy as it is, I think this is one more step down a very dark path that some of us are trying desperately to, to scream at people not to do this. But, uh, Greg, a lot of days, I'm not sure it does any good. This is a really embarrassing moment for San Francisco. And this is a city that is uh, literally awash with human waste on its streets. And this is perhaps even more embarrassing for them and even more embarrassing than the 49ers. Yes, uh, football season starts tonight. And Jim, as you uh, pointed out in the morning jolt today, you and I are having a mini fantasy draft, not of NFL players, but of Democratic presidential primary contenders. We're going to have three rounds here, uh, each of us getting three picks, and you are on the clock. Yeah, just people wondering what the heck are Jim and Greg doing? <laughs> uh, Greg, I always like the idea of fantasy football. Uh, I'm a football fan. I do think it gets a little weird where you're like, you know, I don't care. I don't care that, that my team is ahead. Who scores the touchdown? You know, um, <laughs> and suddenly you become really interested in that. You know, who scored the go? You know, this meaningless touchdown in a 48 nothing <laughs> route between you know two teams you don't follow at all. Um, but you know, and again, I, I, you know, I've been invited to be part of leagues. It sounds like fun, but I just, Greg, I don't know about you. I just don't have the mental real estate to really get into this <laughs> in part because of my day job requires me to cover the democratic presidential primary. So I'm making the best of both worlds and we're creating our democratic presidential primary fantasy league. Um, and I had some high hopes. I had some really good picks uh, that I was ready for. I had to change it a little bit. Um, I'll be honest. My first overall pick was going to be Kirsten Gillibrand, a uh, Senator from New York running for president. Uh, I don't know if you heard, Greg. It turns out she's uh, she got an ACL. Ooh. She's actually craven, lousy candidate. Um, <laughs> so she's off. She's out of it. Uh, my first pick then uh, will be a tight end out of Stanford. No, I'm not making that up. Cory Booker, senator from New Jersey. There's actually coverage of him. You can actually go online and find uh, back in the you know early 90s, 
Uh, Cory Booker was did get to Stanford. He does have a football scholarship, and he was a pretty darn good one. Um, not good enough to make it to the pros, but he has some nice highlights there. So, uh, look, whatever else you think of Cory Booker, probably makes a pretty good tight end. All right. Well, the first pick is uh, in the books. I don't know who the commissioner of our league is, but if it's still Roger Goodell, he's getting booed right now as Cory Booker comes on stage and uh, holds up his Jim Garrity jersey. Uh, for my first pick, you know, one of the most important factors to look for when drafting a real player or a fantasy player is adaptability and flexibility, particularly when the game plan needs to be altered. When it comes to politics, no one can intentionally or unintentionally change the facts like former Vice President Joe Biden. So are you in one state but wish you were in another? Just say so. Biden's your guy. Is your current position out of step? No worries. Biden can just dust off that play from 1979 and you're back in business. And like any good game manager, quarterback Joe Biden knows he just needs to get the ball to his playmakers. And in his case, he's going to hand off the ball to the Obama legacy to pander to the liberal base as much as humanly possible. That thing's going to get like 50, 60 carries a game. So with the first pick in the Democratic fantasy primary, I select Joe Biden. Some really interesting stuff. Interesting pick there, Greg. I I was tempted. A couple of thoughts. One, the eye injury has me a little nervous. (laughs) Uh, for those who watched him at the climate change thing last night, look, you know, for a long time, you're talking about a guy who has been a backup for eight years. And, you know, that the entire Obama administration, everybody knew he was he, had, he was ready to come into the game, but nobody wanted him to step in for the starter, <laughs> Obama. Um, there's that question. Look, getting a little long in the tooth. Look, we don't like talking about this part of the game. Uh, you know, it kind of takes away the fun for everyone. But um don't you think he might belong in the concussion protocol? <laughs> We're going to have the closest scrutiny, absolutely. In other words, if he can uh, tell us within at least a decade what year it is, he's going back in the game. All right, there you go. Good, good. A little margin of error there. So yes, that's pretty good. yes. All right, my uh, second pick, um, I went with a guy who's yeah, – a lot of people said he was undersized, small school, uh, obscure background, but uh, I'm going with Julian Castro. Uh, former mayor, former secretary of HUD. Now, here's the thing, Greg. A lot of people, you know, he's got a bit of a reputation, and some people said he's, he's you know, got some dirty hits in his past. Like he will take completely out-of-line shots at people long after the whistle's blown. Turns out it was actually Joaquin Castro, <laughs> twin brother, doing the, the doing the doxing and, and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, it was that one or, or Beto uh, out of Texas, and, and I just kind of figured that Castro – was one of those guys. First of all, he had some good shots. I mean, he, he, you know, hit Beto pretty hard in that one. Actually, Beto ended up going into the concussion protocol after that first debate. So um, Julian Castro is my second pick. I've, I'm forecasting him as he really is a cornerback nickelback um, because, you know, this guy can move pretty fast uh, from mayor to HUD to presidential candidate in a, in a rapid amount of time. Uh, excellent pick. Uh, yeah, he could be, uh, could be tougher than most offenses realize. I almost went with Beto also. Uh, because, you know, when you take the, the broad view, especially like the, the media's 2018 Senate campaign view, boy, it looks like this guy could be dangerous. But about midway through the second quarter of the season opener, you realize there's really not much there. And you're not going to devote more than one nickel back over there to try to figure out what he's doing. Plus, if you play him on defense, all those wild gestures, you get all sorts of hands to the face penalties. And <laughs> it's, just, it's just trouble. So, uh, so I, I said I went with uh, Joe Biden because of his adaptability and flexibility. And while versatility is nice. You can't have everyone just freewheeling or the whole system falls apart. You need a captain who's willing to slap people in the face 
and tell everyone they're doing things wrong regularly because people love that and that you're deeply, deeply disappointed in them. And no one is better at that than Elizabeth Warren, who I often liken to the nitpicker from your local homeowners association who reports (laughs) you because your mailbox is eight inches from the curb instead of nine. Like the center on the offensive line, she will harangue the team incessantly to execute the game plan properly. Everyone will loathe her, but they'll do their jobs just to avoid getting yelled at again. And just like the great Jim Thorpe, perhaps the greatest football player ever, Warren brings another intangible to the game. That's right. She's from Oklahoma. What did you think I was going to say? Which is now a football factory, by the way. Billy Sims played college ball there, Barry Sanders, Adrian Peterson, Baker Mayfield, Kyler Murray. So Elizabeth Warren, second-round draft pick in the books. All right, so I just want to double-check, Greg. Your team name is the Columbus Redskins? (laughs) You went right up to the line. I veered right over it. You're going to yell false start on me. Uh, Let's just kind of observe. You're right. You talked talked a moment earlier about overhyped draft choices. Beto O'Rourke really is the Ryan Leaf presidential candidate. Um, (laughs) The, the four listeners who remember Ryan Leaf are saying, yes, absolutely. Uh, that, that's a pretty good pick. Those are those are two big name folks. I was tempted about Warren, but, um, you know, Greg, she's from New England. And uh, you know, I just can't stand anybody from New England. Um, but let's also, uh, look, when people say, ah, you know, players out of this region, let's just also keep in mind, you know, a couple, couple of bunch of years back. Yeah, you know, people drafted uh, out of Massachusetts, John Kerry. Uh, Mike Dukakis, you know, even, <laughs> even the guy I had high hopes for, Mitt Romney. So I know everyone says, oh, Massachusetts, it's a powerhouse in politics. They churn out presidential candidates. Yeah, yeah, but do they ever win, right? You know, <laughs> fair question. Can't win the big game. That's my fear out of that. So so my third pick, I'm kind of Mel Kuyper Jr. I like to look for the, the guys who are not as well known, got great agility, great mobility, as, uh, as uh, Mel Kuyper says every year when they take him out of the cryogenic chamber for, for his draft coverage. <laughs> Um, and so I'm going with little known, one of the blue hens of Delaware, uh, John Delaney. Uh, I'm going to start him at offensive guard um, because, you know, while most people don't find him terribly offensive, he does have an ability to put other candidates on the defensive. Like when he points out for supporters of Medicare for all that, you know, most Americans who like their coverage don't want to lose it. So um, a lot of people underestimate this guy, but I think he does cause people to underestimate uh, this. Now, again, I, Warren says he's got a conservative game plan. Um, I think sometimes running it up the middle is great. Now, here's the thing. The thing with Delaney, and some people have said this about Biden and, and a bunch of these other candidates, uh, Hickenlooper back before he blew out his knee. Um, I'm sorry, his brain. Um, the argument is that they always run it up the middle. Now, I've looked at these guys. I've looked at the record. I've watched the tape. I don't think they really run it up the middle. I think when push comes to shove, they're always going to the left side of the line. But that's that's my assessment there, Fred. Very good. Very good. Well, you never want to be Mr. or Ms. Irrelevant in a draft, but somebody has to be that. And since there's only three rounds, you're about to find out who it is. With my final pick in the Democratic fantasy political draft, I need a player that the opponent simply cannot game plan for because you just never know what they're going to say or do. Think Terrell Owens or Chad Johnson. Yeah, they'll make you wonder what planet they're on sometimes, but they can also break a game wide open. So you want to talk health care policy? Ha! Good luck staying on that topic when my draft pick starts assailing the forces of darkness or begins harnessing love. Much like a trash-talking <laughs> defensive back, Marianne Williamson can get in the other candidates' heads like no one else. And while we know she's not big on game plans, which will clash with Elizabeth Warren quite extensively, Marianne Williamson 
Might not even look like she's paying attention on defense. She'll take some bizarre, circuitous route, playing zone when everybody else is in man. And then all of a sudden, when you least expect it, she'll step in front of the opposing receiver for a pick six just when you need it most. That's that's a really good choice there, uh, Greg. Maybe I maybe I missed somebody who was good. Um, I also want to point out that you know again you you work you go on you take the field with the players you have. Um, there was one other guy who I was looking forward to, kind of local. Uh, you know, a lot of people think Virginia is a pretty good spot for uh, developing players. Um, Terry McAuliffe, uh, former governor, much to everyone's surprise, the least embarrassing governor of Virginia <laughs> out of the last three. Um, but it turns out he didn't run. He had cold feet. Much like Oakland Raiders wide receiver Antonio Brown. <laughs> okay, for those of you who don't follow football, Antonio Brown was apparently doing cryogenics to, to help his body or something and got severe frostbite on his feet. He's, he's fine now, or, or at least as fine mentally as Antonio Brown gets. But uh, yeah, so that was the most outrageous injury I've heard in a while. So. You can explain a joke, Greg, but you can't save it. <laughs> So hopefully you enjoyed our fantasy Democratic presidential primary draft. Good luck to your favorite team. Although, as we've said before, we really don't mean it for a lot of teams. Uh, but we certainly do for the Bears and Jim, for your Jets. The season starts tonight. Those of you who uh, don't like football but your spouse does, it's over in four months. And uh, you'll get to talk to each other again sometime in the winter. So, Jim, see you tomorrow. You know, for a bunch of these teams, the season actually, the meaningful part of the season ends pretty early. So, um, honey, I'll be chatting with you in, in October, probably. Anyway, uh, always good to join you, Greg. Take care. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. And be sure to tune in again on Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch.